the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. I've been excited about this episode for quite a while. Our guest in this episode is a big name inside the Vortex. Her story came to light in 2011, although she had been working with the FBI for a while before that. She was subject to an FBI polygraph test about her story, which she passed, and the FBI claims to have compared her uncle's DNA to the partial that they have. Her book, DB's Niece, In the Raw, Unedited, a memoir, is available on Amazon now, and I'd highly recommend you check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Marla Cooper. What do you remember about Thanksgiving in 1971? Well, um, the actual day, Thanksgiving, I remember um, a lot. Do you want, like, the whole holiday experience of that year or that specific day? Let's do the whole holiday experience. Why okay. not? Okay. Well, um what I remember is that I was, um, well, it was, you kind of have to understand our whole family dynamic. My family was, um, you know, sort of, I don't want to say transient. We weren't like that, but my dad worked in power line construction. And so we moved with the power line and, you know, so we moved all over the Pacific Northwest, but wherever we lived at the time, holidays rolled around, we would manage to get back to Sisters, Oregon, which was where um, my mom and dad had attended school and um, where my grandparents were. My, um, my, I didn't have grandfathers at that time. I, my um, mother's father had died and her um, you know, stepmother was there. So I had that grandmother. And then my, my dad's mother was Irene. And her husband had died when I was just a baby. So he was gone, but all the boys would come home. My, my dad was one of five sons my grandmother had who lived. And so we would always go home at Thanksgiving time or Christmas time, or you know, usually it was Thanksgiving or Christmas. That year, um, we lived in Spokane, Washington, and came home at Christmas to visit, or, or Thanksgiving to visit my grandmother and my uncle Dewey. And my uncle LD were there. Um, I don't really remember who else was around. Um, I do remember that Dewey had a girlfriend who had kids roughly the same age as me and my brother and sister. And so it was a, you know, that typical trip home. And, you know, you're, it's so fun to see my family. They were, you know, it was like there was that family connection and, but my, my uncles were 
kind of funny. They, they were talking about they were going to go on this turkey hunt. They were planning this turkey hunt, and they had put together a duck blind that my dad had built, like, when their their dad was alive, you know, and it, I'd never seen this thing. It was set up in the backyard, and um, I was like, what's that? You know, where did that come from? And, and you know, it was like, oh, it was in the shed. Well, I'd never been in the shed. It had always been locked up. So it's kind of unusual in that way for the holiday. They were looking at this duck blind and you know and I was like oh wow this is a really cool fort and um it was like they didn't want me to go in there they were like no you might get hurt you need to stay out of there whatever well they had these walkie talkies and they were um gonna take them out on this turkey hunt that they were going on right and but the way they were talking about this turkey hunt you know it was I, I described it in my book as playing mental keep away with me. Like they're, they're talking about a turkey hunt, but you have a feeling they're really talking about something else. And, you know, I was this overly curious little kid. I was really um, kind of like this spy girl. <laughs> you know, I wanted, I wanted to know what everybody was doing. And so I was tagging along with them as they went out into the woods with these walkie talkies and they were testing the bandwidth of the walkie talkies. And they were, um, you know, my, I was walking along with my uncle LD and his next older brother, my uncle Dewey, um, was walking the opposite direction and we're out in the woods and, you know, we walk and walk and walk and we just keep, you know, he, keeps communicating with Dewey to see if they can hear each other and I remember they determined that they could hear each other from a mile and a half apart they were a mile and a half apart from each other when the signal broke up so bad you couldn't hear each other and so they were pretty happy about that and um the strange thing is is I I I don't know if I what's the best way to tell the story but the whole time we were walking out in the woods, Dewey kept calling LD Linus over the radio. He was saying, are you there, Linus? Come in, Linus. Linus, do you read me? And I just thought that was really funny. I'd never heard anyone call LD Linus before. but Like I loved... from Charlie Brown. Yeah, yeah, like like Charlie Brown and the Peanuts characters. And, and I was like, why? You know, I just thought that was funny. And then I went, well, if you're Linus, Uncle Dewey's got to be Pigpen. Because my Uncle Dewey was just really a slob. And, um, and you know, it was kind of a, just an odd thing that actually I, you know, when we got back to the house, I was calling LD Linus. And they they told me, you can't call him that. That's that's a secret name. You You can't call him that. Don't don't let anyone hear you say that kind of a thing. Oh, like it was a code name. Yeah. And, and you know, what was weird is I completely forgot about that. I, that was, you know, just one of those things that was lost in the minutia of, you know, sort of like the, the Dan Cooper comic books that he had hanging on his bedroom wall. 
I mean, he had several of them and I remember, you know, taking them down, trying to read them and they were written in this weird language that I didn't understand. And, you know, that's really incredible that he had a bunch of those comic books. I know. I know. Right. You know, when I went to the FBI with my story and forgive me for jumping around because it was like 2009 when I first reached out to the FBI and they began an investigation in 2010 and then, you know, it was like a almost a year later that, well, it was, it was like a year and a half later that they leaked that story. And, you know, that's when the world found out about me. But um, he, whenever I was, um, inter- when I was talking to the FBI, um, I don't remember where I came across something about the Dan Cooper comic, but I guess it was, you know, Curtis Ng had told me about other people who were, you know, researching, whatever. And I really wasn't interested in hearing other people's research, what other people knew about the hijacking. Cause I just, you know, my story is my story and I didn't, I really didn't want to be influenced by what others thought, but I had read, you know, just, my dad had admonished me to, you know, read about it before he died. Twenty years, you know, however many years it had been, 1996. My dad was had died, and um, I mean, early, early 96. And I saw him the month before he died, and he reminded me of the hijacking that I had completely forgot about that I had witnessed, you know. And then several years went by before my mother said something that triggered the memory. I am going to get back to Thanksgiving here in a minute. I assure you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, I had just, you know, I didn't, I didn't connect the comic books to the hijacking. And then I read the, you know, somebody that Carol was doing this research on the comic books and or that some people believed that the Dan Cooper comic books were related. And, and I was like, oh my God, he had those comic books. I mean, I, I called Curtis Ng up and said, this is insane because I remember that, you know, they had that he had these comic books. I distinctly remembered them because my dad's name was Don. And, you know, the comic that seeing that name, Dan Cooper, I was like, is this another cousin or brother? You know, who is this Dan Cooper person? I didn't I couldn't understand what the comic books were about, you know, and I was couple I was only like six when those were hanging up on the wall and I wasn't a very good reader but you know I remember those being there and they were you know God knows how long they'd been hanging up on that wall but um anyway it was one of those things the the Linus when somebody who had worked with my uncle in it with my uncle LD worked with him in clandestine operations for Air America told me you know his name and I just I mean I have it on video I'm like uh, it's like when you I don't know if you've ever experienced that where something happens you know just a single word will trigger a flood of memories you know and that's what it was like the Linus thing so meanwhile back at Thanksgiving Day we're walking through the woods and it's, you know, they've got an hour and a half bandwidth and they're going to be going out on this turkey hunt Thanksgiving Eve. And supposedly they're going to be back 
Thanksgiving morning with a turkey and and I'm nervous that they're not going to have a turkey and that that's actually going to be our Thanksgiving bird and you know it's like we're going to starve to death because you know they'd never come back with anything from a hunt that I had seen and so I was waiting for them they left that day Um, they didn't take the duck blind with them that I remember um I I know that when they came back the following morning, they were driving a car. Um, LD had a, well, actually, Dewey had a sports car. And I used to think it was a Triumph. My brother told me it was like a, um, well, I can't remember, it was some kind of sports car. And they drove up in that car the next morning. And I was, I mean, it was early, early, early in the morning. And I was waiting up was like climbing my favorite tree and you know, they, they drove up in the driveway and I was like, wow, you know, where's the Turkey? I want to see the Turkey. And I looked in the car, I ran up to the driver's seat where Dewey was driving and he smelled like he was drunk, you know, and he just looked really angry and upset. And, um, they, I, I, and LD was in this white t-shirt that was just bloody and he was, he was a mess. I mean, he was cut. He was, I, I can't in my mind's eye, you know, see exactly what he looked like. I just remember that bloody shirt and that he was, he looked really badly hurt. And I was, it was frightening to see him in that condition. You know, I was just a little kid. Yeah. Especially as a child. Right. And so here's my favorite uncle and he is just, um, you know, it was, it was dramatic. And I asked Dewey what had happened and he was telling me to go inside and get my dad. And I was like, what, what happened? What happened? He said, we got in a wreck and I'm looking at the car. He said, this car is fine. I mean, I knew he was lying to me and he started cussing at me. He told me just go inside and, and get your dad and, you know, when I came, when I, when I got dad, which my dad was like, he knew something was wrong because he came, he came running and my dad came outside and he was upset. And, and I think Dewey, Dewey was, he was such a weird guy, you know, um, the more I've, cultivated my memories and the more you know my sister has said things about him my mother was before she died she was really just oh you couldn't mention his name without her becoming furious there was not a kind thing she had to say about him and um he was really like if I had to if I was to look at him neutrally if I was to meet him today and he wasn't my uncle I would be thinking he is, he's a con man of sorts, you know, he, he just, he had that way of trying to smooth people, like his, his wife, who was his wife when, when he died, um, I met her long after he died, said, you know, he could just sweet talk anybody into anything. And (laughs) she said, you know, he had no problem making friends and just, he could walk into any bar and he'd have a, you know, a bar full of buddies by the end of the night, or he'd be in a big fight with them. You know, he, he never knew, but he was, 
he had a certain charming characteristic about him and where LD was really the, the very quiet reclusive one and um Dewey was you know very domineering I would say over over LD um but my dad um when he came outside he was he was really upset because I think they had probably alluded to him what they were doing and dad just was like I don't even want to know I don't want, I don't want to have any part of this and I remember hearing my dad say to Dewey in the yard, calling him a stupid son of a bitch or a crazy son of a bitch, something like that, and being furious. And, and Dewey was telling him, but we're rich. We just have to go back and find the money. It's out in a field or something. That, I remember him saying it's out in a field somewhere. You know, we know where it is, but we just have to go back and find it, something like that. And but what stuck to me was we're rich, you know, our money problems are over. He said something like that. And, you know, suddenly I'm like this happy kid because we had been poor my whole life. I mean, I remember my which wasn't uncommon then, you know, this was post depression. And my family was, you know, working class, blue collar, whatever. You know, there was never tons of money and we moved constantly which is very expensive and um you know I remember thinking wow is that really true are we really rich you know I'm dancing around the backyard and my dad's like Marla he had already told me to go inside and I didn't and you know now he was mad at me and so I had to go inside but I think I just I I was eavesdropping from the backyard somehow I heard him tell him tell Dewey, you got to get the hell out of here. Um, you've got to get out of here before mom comes home. You know, you'll break her heart, something like that. He wanted them gone. And he came, my father came and got me and sat me down on a step that was attached to a bedroom at the back of the house that was, had a boarded up door that the step would have, you know, gone through that doorway. But he sat me down there and he was talking really and he was really upset he said listen you cannot tell anybody about this what ld and dewey have done is wrong but they didn't really get away with it you know he he was talking sort of in odd you know strange terms i did hear them say they had said something about a hijacking we hijacked the airplane dad and my dad reminded me of this later but I remember hearing that word hijacking and he was, he said, you know, LD could be killed for what he did. He said, he goes, Marla, if you ever tell anybody, you know, LD could die for his, for the part he played in this. And he said, he goes, you cannot ever speak about this ever again. And he said, you know, this is our secret. You know that your mother and I don't keep secrets from each other, but this is this is the one secret you cannot tell her or anyone. And it was like, you know, we, we never talked about it again, except the following week when it was show and tell. And, you know, my turn was going to be up the next day. And I was like, Dad, can I tell about, you know, my uncle being, because everybody was talking about the hijacking in school, right? And, and I was like, dad, can I tell, 
can I tell my class that FLLD hijacked an airplane? And you're like, oh my God, no. And I get the lecture all over again. I mean, it was like, you cannot say a word to anybody about this. That's too bad. That would have been a great show and tell story. Oh my gosh, I know. (laughs) I would have been the coolest kid in school, right? (laughs) I know. I know. He deprived me of that. But yeah, I it's kind of funny though, you know, because to a third grader, I was eight years old and it was like a week had gone by. That's forever, isn't it? Isn't that long enough to keep a big secret like that when everybody is talking about this hijacking and you know it's so strange because I on and I guess it still happens on Thanksgiving Day there's the Macy's Day Parade and it was always broadcast on television on Thanksgiving Day and you know while you're eating Thanksgiving dinner or while you're cooking it you know, the whole family's watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. We had, you know, three television channels back then. So <laughs> it was like, you didn't have a lot of choices in what you were watching on TV. And, but the Thanksgiving, the parade and everything else on TV was preempted with, you know, these pictures of, of these lights flashing, you know, on this runway and, and this airplane that's very blurry in the dim light, and and they keep showing this composite drawing of this guy, and I keep thinking, you know, going, how do they know what somebody looks like? And to me, as a little kid, that drawing didn't look like anybody I knew. You know, it, it could have looked like anybody, but as an adult, when I saw the composite drawings, you know, all of those how it was all 38 years later when my memory surfaced and I pull up those drawings and I'm like, Oh my God, this looks like my dad. I mean, I, I can barely remember LG's face, but it, that picture looked like my father. And, you know, but as a little kid, it didn't, it just didn't look like anybody to me. Um, kind of in the same way my mother has a sister who is her half sister. And, my mother's whole life, she believed that she was her stepsister. And, you know, when I met that aunt as an adult, I was like, oh, my God, she looks just like you. Of course, she's your <laughs> sister, you know. But as a kid, you know, nobody really looks alike. It's like they all have eyes and noses and they don't, you know, unless they're an exact twin, they people just didn't, I didn't notice the similarities, I guess. But so the composite drawing that kept flashing up on the TV was bad. Didn't look like anything to me. But but I do remember thinking, well, that's really weird. This guy hijacked an airplane and they're looking for him. And, you know, I, I knew an Uncle LD hijacked an airplane. And, I went, you know, I, and then I was remembering what my dad said. You know, he didn't really get away with it. He didn't, you know, he kind of made it sound like... um he set out to do something, but he didn't accomplish it. But if people knew he'd tried to do this terrible thing, he'd be dead. He'd go to prison. He would die for what he had done. That was the um, the feeling I got from my father. So, um, you know, I didn't. I I'm watching the TV, and I'm not making the association with my uncle LD because I'm just like I've got to keep my mouth shut anyway. I can't talk about it, but. It was, 
you know, it was just really awkward. It was very, very tense. And um, we, my grandmother was upset. She was like, where is LD? Why isn't he at Thanksgiving? Um, it seems like Dewey had showed up later. Um, I remember getting, being allowed to play with the walkie talkies and actually breaking one of them and, you know, breaking the antenna off of it. And my parents had to replace them and I felt really badly about it. And, you know, Dewey just seemed sort of listless and he was usually, you know, kind of a fiery guy. He was either laughing or he was, you know, or he was angry or whatever. He was just very um, emotionally charged. And that day he was just quiet and listless. It seems like he had come back to the house at Thanksgiving, you know, for dinner or whatever, but LD was not there. And um, I found out later, you know, what, where they went, you know, what, what happened after they left the house. But, um, you know, that's what I remember that day. We left um, probably the day after Thanksgiving or, you know, we maybe stayed another day or two, but we, we were back in school in Seattle when, or um, Spokane when when school resumed and um, we had we had gone we stopped off at another uncle's house um, on our way out of town and visited with you know saw his house and his dogs and his girlfriend and you know it's kind of kind of weird I mean that's all I really remember about the holiday um, and then the following school year um, I think it was actually at the end of that third grade school year, we, um, well, this is the other strange thing. We, we had a really cool house in Spokane and I mean, it was a nice little rental house and it seems like, I know it was somewhere around the holidays that we moved to another house that was owned by a friend of my um, mom and dad's and we moved into this different house, changed schools. You know, I don't know that that had anything to do with the hijacking, but I sort of feel like it does. Um, you know, my dad's not here for me to ask these things. And my mother really was kept in the dark about all of it. But I do remember after the Thanksgiving holiday and right before we moved into that rental house, the man who, owned the house his name was Jack and um Jack and Paula were were the couple who owned it and I don't remember their last name my sister mentioned it to me a few years ago she remembered but I think that Jack and my father had worked together in our my dad was in army intelligence and it seems like dad and my and Jack had been friends in the military they've been friends for a really long time and um, Jack took us up in an airplane. I'd never been in a plane before. And he and my dad um, were going to go up in this plane one day. And they took my sister and I with them. My brother, I didn't want to go. I was terrified to get in an airplane. <laughs> and my brother didn't go. But we got in that plane and we drove from Spokane um like, I want to say that we drove to Portland. Um, I remember we circled some major airport 
and then came back. We might have even landed to refuel. I'm not sure. But, I mean, we were just flying over the woods. And I, I'm like, you know, later in life, as I remembered this, you know, and how it coordinated with the timing of the hijacking and everything, you know, I wonder, were they looking for the money in a field <laughs> up in an airplane? You know, what what was going on? What was up with the timing of that? You know, that was kind of weird. It was the only time in my life I had been in an airplane until I was an adult. And it just seemed really strange. Um, but anyway, we, we changed schools that at the, you know, break Christmas break or something. And then, um, and it was the house we moved to was in a much rougher part of town. It was really a rough school and kind of a, I don't know, it was, it was close to the main streets of Maine and division that divide, um, Spokane and, and it was like, gosh, why do we have to move? You know, we always would move just in the middle of the school year anyway. But that year, it just seems odd that we moved. And, you know, in retrospect, I wonder if my, you know, if my dad was making evasive maneuvers, you know, because I do know that um, Dewey had been interviewed in men dressed in black suits who took him away for several hours and then um, brought him back and he was scared to death and he fled to Canada with his girlfriend and children and they camped out for I don't know how long you know he just sort of vanished and um, you know I think the investigation came really really close to our family and so I, I you know but what was happening in the minds of my parents they, they didn't really share those thoughts with me or at least my dad didn't and my mother was clueless about the hijacking and I mean she was very suspicious but you know could never get my dad to talk about it and um, I guess in some ways didn't want to know what you know what the truth was she had to have looked at the composites though and recognized you know that looks exactly like my brother-in-law, you know, she had her, she had deep suspicions, but she goes, she said as an adult, you didn't dare talk about it. You know, it's like the subject was off limits, but the following school year, we moved right behind my grandmother, Irene and LD was there. He lived there and he walked with a limp. He was, um, he, I guess he was still recovering from his injuries because, you know, my dad told me later that he, LD had strapped the money to himself and he was either out on the aft stair or something. Somehow he realized that the chute was not open, but it, as he was trying to open up the chute, he, the money came loose and he dropped it. That's the story my dad told me. I'm not sure that it happened exactly like that. Um, but he said, you know, he never had the money. He never found the money. And I know that Dewey was looking for that money the rest of his life. That oh, really? He, yeah. He would. Um, I learned that from his stepdaughter. And, and then his wife, you know, when I informed her. <laughs> That's really an interesting story. She, 
she started putting two and two together after we met, you know, because he'd always told her that he had nothing to do with the hijacking. And I was like, how, this is Dewey's last wife. And I said, how did that even come up as a subject? And she's exactly. like, exactly. How did that come up? Yeah. I, I, I asked, well, and I'll tell you how we, how I even came to have that conversation with her. It, it, Dewey and, you know, we saw Dewey later. It, maybe he was around, his kids were in school with us that, um, the next school year, at least for part of that school year. And then, you know, they just kind of vanished off the face of the earth. I mean, we, we moved to the desert of New Mexico after at the spring break of my fifth grade year. Um, but we were all in school together in Sisters, Oregon, when I was in the fourth grade. And um, at Christmas time was the last time I saw LD. He, um, he gave me a, he's made gifts for all of us. We never really exchanged gifts with, you know, it's like our parents bought us gifts. We got something small for our grandmother, you know, but it was like, we just, nobody in the family had money to be buying presents for each other. And so, you know, the gift you gave each other was you just showed up and you spent time together and you had a meal together and you got to listen to funny stories our parents would tell and we'd play music and sing, you know, that was, that was what Christmas was for. It wasn't about exchanging gifts, but that year I'd come home from school and LD would be at my grandmother's house working on leather objects. He had, he knew how to tool leather. He was making guitar straps for my parents. He made my mother a purse. He made my dad a wallet. He made um, belts for my sister and I, and I think my brother too. And he had not finished my belt. And I think the reason he didn't get it finished is I was always sitting there watching him tool the leather <laughs> when he was working on it. And he didn't want to work on it in front of me. When he And so when he gave it to me, and I believe we opened our gifts on thanks on Christmas Eve that year. So this would have been Christmas of 1972. Um, he said, I'm sorry, this isn't finished. I hope someday I can finish this for you. And, and I was like, I kept looking for him to come back. Um, he was, I, mean, I just, I loved him. I loved spending time with him. And that year I got to spend a lot of time with him. And he was just this quiet, thoughtful, very sweet, sweet man um, who could be funny. But I was just enamored with him. And, you know, and then he was just gone. And I never saw him again. So that was a year after the hijacking. And I would ask my dad, you know, when's he coming back? Have you heard from him? Do you know where he is? And nobody knew where he was. Um, they didn't really talk about him. It was just, no, we, I don't know where he is. I, I think he might have gone to Nevada, you know, something like that. I think he took a job somewhere, you know, we, but we don't know where. And we haven't heard from him. And so the next year... Um, we moved to spoke to um, uh, St. Helens, Oregon, and I attended my fifth grade there. And it was at spring break that year that we moved to Clayton, New Mexico. 
and it was so weird because it was like, why are we moving so far away? And my dad had gotten kicked out of the apprenticeship program he was in to become a journeyman lineman. And my parents had a really good band. They played music with, you know, it was my mother and father and my uncle Wendell. They had a band together and they had a really great the three C's. Yes. (laughs) They, they played their gig was at the, what was then called the flying M ranch. And it was, um, near Yamville, Oregon. And my uncle Clyde's place practically bordered, um, that property. And so we would see Clyde like every weekend as we'd be leaving where they were playing music. And, um, dad and Clyde always seemed to be, you know, they'd always walk off by themselves. You know, they'd get away from everybody and go walk off by themselves and be talking. And, you know, next thing I know, my dad was unemployed. And it wasn't just that he was laid off. It was that he wasn't going to get that kind of a job again. And um, my parents were fighting, you know, it was just really a strange year, quiet, um depressing you know it seems like my mom and dad were both really really depressed and you know then next thing I know we're when they got their tax return we're going to move to New Mexico and I'm like what's that and you know my dad is like you're probably never coming back to Oregon again and I was like what (laughs) what about grandma you know what about uh, what about everybody this isn't why are we leaving and And it was just a really, really sad time. And I, you know, at that time, I didn't make the connection between we're leaving because of the hijacking. I know that now, but, you know, then it was like, it was just the craziest, saddest, saddest thing to be leaving the Pacific Northwest and going so far away from our family. And and then, you know, we moved to, (laughs) this place that looks like we could have been living on the moon you know I love New Mexico now but where we live um the little town of Clayton it's it's like just in the middle of nowhere and you know you couldn't get anywhere that was very interesting (laughs) you know it was just odd but um I I think you know we moved to Colorado like a after just a few months in New Mexico and and my grandmother died um, November of the following school year so she didn't even live a year she was like seven eight months after we left and my dad went home for the funeral and and reported to us that LD was not there that he didn't he didn't come to her funeral and that, you know, my dad, I remember hearing him on the phone with Dewey later talking about it. And then Uncle Wendell moved down there for a while. He lived in Colorado and, um, you know, they were talking about it, about LD. You know, nobody's heard from LD, but, you know, and how how terrible that he hadn't come to his mother's funeral. They wondered if something happened to him. You know, it was just a, it's just a bad deal. And we never, you know, I, every year, every holiday, I would be asking my dad, you know, have you heard from Uncle LD? 
you know, how how would he find us if if he wanted to reach out to us? How would he know where we are? You know, it was just a always in my mind. And um, you know, I wouldn't know the answer to that until I was almost fifty years old. And you know, and that's when everything came together and I understood. So Anyways, that was a long answer to a simple question. No, it was a great answer. So the last time you saw LD is in 1972, and your dad tells you all this D.B. Cooper talk, it's it's off limits. We're not going to talk about it anymore. That name, D.B. Cooper, was never even mentioned. It was, I mean, when when we were watching the newscast, it was they were talking about, you know, the hijacker and the name that LD gave was Dan Cooper, you know, and, and then it was somebody, you've probably read this story, somebody in the, there was an arrest or a man who was brought in for questioning who had the initials DB Cooper and like so many things in the media, you know, there are so many inaccuracies that name just sort of stuck, you know, the public consciousness kind of grabs on to the name D.B., not Dan. And so he became known in the public as D.B. Cooper. But, um, yeah, Dad, Dad just, you know, it, it was, we're not going to talk about what happened on Thanksgiving. Um, and we're not going to talk about, you know, the word hijacking just didn't really come up. <laughs> it was like <laughs> that topic was off limits. And I had gone home to New Mexico to visit my dad. It was a very um, spur of the moment trip and it was Christmas time of 1995 and I had left work, packed bags, got in my car and headed, you know, it, it was like an eight hour drive from Tulsa to get to Clayton, New Mexico. And I um, got there really late, you know, like probably four o'clock in the morning I didn't get on the road till eight and um dad and I sat up drinking coffee we were reminiscing um that we'd all gotten together the spring before my sister and my brother and his kids and my kids we were we were all together and you know we were just laughing and just having the best time sitting around dad's table you know, and hanging out in the backyard. It had been in the springtime, and and it was like, gosh, you know, Dad and I are at the t- counter, and I said, I haven't had that much fun since we were in Oregon. I go, this is that's what it used to feel like being at Grandma's house at the holidays, and how nice it was to have your family together. You know, because it had just that had been non-existent from the time we left Oregon until that spring and dad said you know we were just talking about how nice it was and and then suddenly it's you know it's like my mind is in my grandmother's living room and I'm thinking about the scene there and and I asked him the question again you know have you heard from uncle LD did you ever find out what happened to him where he is and and dad said no I think he's still hiding and I go what what do you mean he's hiding? This was the first time I'd heard he's hiding. And I'd asked him that question many, many times, you know, you know, at, at that time, 
I hadn't made the connection. He wouldn't have said that in front of my mother. And anytime I asked the question, it was always, you know, around other people. And I was like, what do you mean he's hiding? <laughs> Who's he hiding from? I, I thought that just sounded silly. And he said, the FBI and the CIA. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he just had thrown me the biggest curveball. And I went, I thought he'd lost his mind, you know? <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about, Dad? That's, he goes, and he was, then he got really stern and serious. He goes, Marla, don't you remember? He hijacked that airplane and Dewey helped him. And I was like, what? I, I went, I, and I kind of covered up my eyes. I mean, I remember wanting to, you know, block out the room and go, because the way he said, don't you remember, it was like, I was supposed to remember it. And I went, I remember knowing my uncle was a hijacker. I go, but I don't really remember anything else. And he goes, oh my God. He said, you've got to go to the library and look at, because, you know, we didn't have the internet. He goes, go look up D.B. Cooper. And I go, D.B. Cooper? I go, but his name is L.G., why would I look up D.B. Cooper? He goes, don't you know about this hijacking, the D.B. Cooper hijacking? And I go, no, I don't really know what you're talking about. And he goes, well, he goes, Marla, it's a famous story. There's been a movie made. There's been songs written about it. And it's this big unsolved mystery. Nobody knows who the hijacker is. And he goes, but it's LD. And he goes, and you were there. You know what happened. And he, he's like, you've, you've, got to, you've got to go read about it. It'll trigger your memories. He goes, Marla, my God, you need to write a book about this. Because I love to write and I'd worked for a man who owned a publishing company and, you know, I did all of his writing and correspondence for him and everybody was always telling me, you need to write a book, you need to write a book. And I was like, yeah, if I knew what I wanted to write a book about, (laughs) you know, I would do that. And dad, dad was like, this, he goes, you've got to write a book about this. He goes, you're, you're like, you were there, you know what happened. He goes, you'll remember and I mean, he was really adamant about it. And I was kind of just dismissing him because I thought he just sounded a little crazy. You know, dad always had these um, big lofty ideas of, you know, this this will make you famous kind of a thing. <laughs> or, um, you know, if we did something, created something clever or cool, he was always like, oh, you got to send that in, you know, <laughs> It was sort of a joke with me and my brother and sister, you know. And, and so when he was saying this, I was like, eh, okay, Dad, yeah, I'll do that. I didn't really take it very seriously. I act like I'm going to do this, but I'm not really going to do it. And Did you even dad, look up D.B. Cooper or anything at that point in time? I No, I didn't. I literally would have had to go to the library, do a search, you know, manually through books. And it was like, that just really didn't sound like a lot of fun to me. (laughs) My um, dad was dead a month later. And he had called me in between and said, Marla, don't forget to do this. Have you done this yet? You know, he was really sort of pressuring me about it. And I was like, you know, I was, I was just overwhelmed. And 
and you know, the next thing I know, my father was gone. It was a month after I'd seen him that he died. And, and then I just completely forgot the D.B. Cooper thing. It was like that, you know, the tr- the shock of him dying. He was only 59 years old. And I just so didn't expect it, you know. And I totally forgot about D.B. Cooper. I totally forgot about the hijacking. I didn't give, you know, I was just stuck in this vortex of pain that um, took precedence over over anything he might have said to me in his last days. And um, I finally, it was, you know, all these years go by and it was 2009 and it was my mother's birthday. So that had been 13, almost 13 years later that um, my mother, something came up at her birthday party. Um, it's sort of the same story. You know, we had this big birthday party for her and my brother and sister and I were there with all of our kids and, um, I had an aunt and an uncle around and it was this great big family gathering and, you know, where it was our own family, not, not step family, but our own relatives. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. This kind of feels like grandma's house. You know, this is all going through my mind in my mother's living room. And, and again, you know, I'm kind of watching this movie in my mind of what it was like at grandma's house. And I kind of blurted that out, that same question. Hey mom, what do you think ever happened to uncle LD? And she goes, Oh hell, I don't know. Yeah. He was that crazy bastard, you know, something she's talking, she's calling him crazy. And I said, why, are you, why would you say that? And she goes, oh, because he, he just was. I, she goes, don't you remember what he was like? I go, I remember he had epilepsy and, you know, on and on and on. And I was like, um, I thought, that's really bizarre. I go, why would you say that, Mom? Why would you call him crazy? And she goes, well, I am absolutely certain he was D.B. Cooper. And she goes, and I think she said something like, and other, you know, I think everybody else knew it or something like that. And I went, well, who's D.B. Cooper? You know, I'd totally forgotten this conversation with my father. And my sister comes out of the kitchen and is like, do you think Uncle L.D. was D.B. Cooper? And mom said, yeah, I'm sure he was. And I was like, hey, wait, who's D.B. Cooper? You know, my sister, she looks at me and she goes, you know, the hijacker. And the minute she said that, it's like my brain opened up and my father's words just came back. And I went, oh, my God. I go, I do know. I go, I do know who that is. I said, yeah, dad told me. I said, dad told me he was D.B. Cooper. And I go, I'm supposed to be writing a book about this. (laughs) I was like, I couldn't, it was so weird. It was like probably what it would be like to have an out-of-body experience. You know, it's like timelines were colliding. I wasn't only sitting in my mother's living room. I was still at my dad's kitchen counter and I was still at my grandmother's table. And it was like there were, all these images flashing through my mind and words, you know, flying around. And I was going, 
it was almost dizzying in that moment. And I just kind of wanted to reach out and make the world stop and get one straight answer from somebody, you know, and I, I was pushing my mother. I go, what do you know about this? Why do you, you know, tell me what you thought? And she is like, she got really angry, like, shut up. I'm not talking about it. Shut up. And, and that was sort of a, a theme of my life, you know, as a kid growing up in that household um, with those people. It was just shut up, shut up, mind your own business, go back to your corner, <laughs> you know, like, go back to being a quiet little um, introspective shy kid. And, you know, that tone that she took was like, I'm not going to push her anymore. And, and, you know, I did later, but she still would just get annoyed. She didn't want to talk about it. And finally, finally, when um, ABC broke the story, I called, they were like, you know, is there anybody else who can collaborate any of this? And I said, well, the only person who's not crazy or dead is my mother. I go, but I don't know if she's going to want to talk about it. She won't even talk to me about it. But, and I called her and I said, you know, would you be willing to tell them? And and the truth is she was afraid to tell anybody she knew. And even at that point, she was afraid of like going to prison for, because she had suspicions. She had a belief. She, she was never told directly. She was not an eyewitness, but you know, in a way she did harm. She her suspicions were very well-founded and um, anyway, she did, she was interviewed. She said, yeah, I always had just a suspicion, whatever. But once she was willing to talk about it, then more memories surfaced. So while I, when I began writing a book about the investigation that I was still involved in, um, you know, she told me more things, you know, why she suspected whatever. And, you know, but she was one who really kept her head in the sand. She didn't want to know. She was sort of afraid of, my dad was not a brute. He was not a bully, but he was an alcoholic and he could be very volatile with his emotions. And, you know, it seemed like it was always conversation about divorce and who's going to take the kids. And, you know, you're not, you know, it was just, there was always this drama between my parents and they divorced when I was 15 years old. But, um, you know, mom was, there were certain topics she wouldn't press with him. Um, and she wasn't afraid of anybody. At least I didn't think so, but she was afraid to talk about that subject with him. And now I know why. Yeah, absolutely. When you, when you left from that, meeting with your mom and your sister what what did you think did you think i need to go forward with writing a book about this i need to look oh absolutely more? oh yeah then i was like oh my gosh there's an internet <laughs> you know I mean? doing research is we so take it for granted now you know you could you have the world of information at your fingertips now from anywhere in the world you know, but before when dad said that, it was like, it was a pain in the ass to do research. And it was extremely time consuming. And it involved time I really didn't have. 
and um, I was not a big reader, and I, I just, it was like, gosh, to, to have to go and sift through books and information, you know, just, it just didn't seem, it didn't seem plausible that I could even manage that at that, at that time, you know, and here I am, you know, it's 2009, and it's like, Oh, let me just get on my smartphone and I can search, you know, I could, I could do a lifetime of, of research in, in a couple of days, you know, that's really how fast information, how much faster information comes to us now than it did even then in 96. So, um, yeah, I immediately, I was with, um, two of my sons and, and the man I was, I was involved with at the time, we, we were driving from Tulsa to Stillwater, Oklahoma, <clears throat> about a 45 minute drive. And the first thing I did, I can't remember DB Cooper, but I just searched Cooper hijack. And of course, the first thing that popped up was the composite drawing. And I was like, just my heart stopped. And I mean, I had not seen that drawing since I was a little girl. And now as an adult, it looks like a picture of my dad, like a really, really good drawing of my dad. And I sent my phone back to my sons. I go, look at this picture. And yeah, they hadn't seen their grandfather since they were little boys. And they were like, oh my God, that looks like Grandpa Don. I go, yeah, because, you know, they'd heard this conversation in that room between my mother and my sister and I. And I go, let's read about this. And so I opened up the Wikipedia article and read it as we drove. And and it was like, I couldn't sleep that night. I mean, the, the images just kept going through my mind of so many different childhood holidays and just childhood memories that had been blocked away for for decades. And, you know, the, in the days that followed, it's like I just kept watching this loop of those family gatherings. And I started writing down um, the things that I felt like might be related and I called my mom and tried to um, get her to talk about it. And she just wouldn't. And um, I made a timeline of all the schools I'd gone to and where I lived and remembered, okay, so this was, you know, 1971 would have been my third grade year. And, you know, and it's like the more you really just relax your brain and allow yourself the time to think like sort of like self-hypnosis, um, the more memories I had of that day, you know, and I could, it's like, I, I, I went, well, of course, you know, coursing them on the driveway that had to have been that day and that turkey hunt. And, you know, it's like that had to have been that holiday. And, you know, cause they were just fragments. It was like putting together the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle you know, each one of those pieces doesn't make a lot of sense, but then when you put them together, they formed a timeline that made perfect sense. That's and, a great way to put it, especially when you're talking about memories as a child. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. And especially like I reached out to my brother and I was like, what do you remember? And he goes, Oh my God. He got really annoyed. (laughs) He's a year younger than I am. He goes, I've done everything I possibly could to forget our childhood. I have nothing to say about this. He's like, I I don't know. I don't remember. And he was just sort of annoyed because I mean, I was, I was obsessed now. It's like, this is a thing that, you know, changed the course of our lives. And this was a thing that it was like, you know, you wonder what God puts you here for. And, you know, in the days following that conversation with my mother, I was going, this is why I'm here. I'm, I mean, this is a big deal (laughs) that, that I know this and that nobody else knows this who's alive. I do know now, as I, I knew at one time as a child that LD and Dewey had done work for the mob. They were trying to get my dad to do stuff for the mob. And he was like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. You know, so he really did try to keep our family away from them. And um, they, so I think he didn't try very hard to find LD once LD left. I think he would have liked to have heard from him, but he wanted to keep us safe. And he knew that wherever LD was probably was not going to be safe for our family. So it made sense now. Yeah. And in your book, you moved 20 times. You went to 20 schools. Is that right? I went to 22 different schools. 22 schools. That is a lot of moving around. Yeah. I went to four first grades. Um, yeah. Let's get back to, um, you're thinking about writing the book now. Uh, yeah. So I was working, well, I was working on the book, you know, from, well, I, I knew I needed to write the book. It was like a mandate from my dad. And I was like, I really need to reach out to the FBI because like the article, what I did read said, you know, there was like some post, if you have any information, you know, maybe there's always somebody who will, there's probably someone out there who remembers that odd uncle. I remember, um, agent Carr who, who had the investigation before Curtis had written that in some story. And I was like, wow, that was written just for me. You know, it seemed like prophetic that he would have written that. So I called the number, there was a hotline and um, he never, he didn't call me back. And so I tried to friend him on Facebook. Larry and, Carr? Yeah, Larry Carr. And he actually accepted my friendship and then it went away real fast. So I was like, okay, weird. And then I thought, well, and, and, and I'm getting a lot of kickback. My sister is, you know, she was giving me grief. Oh my God, don't do this. You know, Marla, you'll, if he's still alive, you know, he'd, he'd, have to go to prison he's this old man how could you do this you know she's just giving me hell over it and you know my mother's obviously still really uncomfortable with the whole subject my brother is like doesn't want to talk about it and he was too little to know well he wasn't too little but he wasn't interested (laughs) and um you know and the guy I was with my boyfriend at the time was like mortified 
um, he was a college professor and he was like, oh my God, you know, now there's going to be all this media and, you know, our life will turn into a circus and what are you thinking? And I'm going, well, first, I think this is a really cool story, you know, and that's, that's a big deal right there. But more importantly, this was my dad's deathbed direction to me. I mean, how do you shake that off? You know, I, there was, it wasn't like, for me, there was no option. I, I was like, like I said a few minutes ago, I realized in those days following the conversation with my mother, this is what I'm here for. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is my life calling is to make this story known. And And so I wasn't going to be persuaded by anybody not to go forward. Um, But I did feel like if if I was supposed to do this, God would intervene and he would lay out the path for me to follow because I didn't know how to get, I didn't know how to go about it at all. We had a family funeral to go to and my sister out of the blue, just reached out to me and goes, I haven't seen my sister in 25 years or something like that. You know, and he was just talking about how odd it was and what happened that caused them to be estranged from each other and how deeply affected he was by having this reunion. And I said, yeah, I know what what you mean by that, you know, to be estranged. I was thinking, I was going to tell him about my crazy sister because we would go years without talking to each other. And, but what came out of my mouth, I mean, seriously, like I was going to talk about my sister, but what came out of my mouth instead was my uncle. And I started telling him, you know, I, the story, what you and I've been talking about. And he went, are you kidding me? He goes, I just watched some, History Channel show about this the other day. I just watched this, like last night. I just watched this. I mean, that's what I was saying to my wife. Man, I can't believe this never got solved. Surely someone had to know. And he goes, I was just glued to the TV. I couldn't stop watching it. And I go, well, yeah, that's me. And he goes, what are you going to do about this? I go, well, I tried to go to the FBI and yada, yada, yada. He goes, listen, if you want to talk to the FBI, if you really are sure you want to go to the authorities with this, Marla, I can have an agent at your doorstep tonight. And how, I How said, long had this been since you had reached out to the FBI? It'd been a few months. I tried to re- I tried to get a hold of them in September, and it's now like March of the next year. So it'd been, you know, six months or so. And you reached out with, hey, I know who D.B. Cooper was. Give me a call. And nothing. Yeah. I left a message. I said, um, I need to speak to you about my uncle, Lynn Doyle Cooper. He is the hijacker known as D.B. Cooper. That's, I said, my name is Marla Cooper. Please call me. And I heard nothing. And then he did this thing where he accepted my friendship on Facebook. And then he ignored me. And I went, I, I go, well, you know, maybe I'm not. I, I don't know. I, I just thought. I'm just going to sit with this. I'm going to remember what I remember and I'm going to sit with this and see, you know, cause I, I basically just prayed about it and said, well, God, the ball's in your court. You know, I feel like I'm supposed to tell this story, but I'm not sure how to go about telling it. 
And, you know, I definitely want to go to the FBI. I want, you know, I want the FBI to make an announcement that it was, I want them to do an investigation. And I, you know, I didn't want it to just be my word. I wanted, I wanted them to dig into his life and find out what they could find out. And, um, to prove your story. To prove my story, right? I mean, I knew I I knew I was telling the truth. I knew he was the hijacker, um, but it's like I wanted them to prove it. I wanted the clout, and um, so I felt like that was the most important first step. And you know, I would journal about it. I was you know basically working on the book via my journaling. Um, but when Arden Dorney said that to me, his his history is that he had been with the highway patrol out of, um, I believe out of Elk city, Oklahoma. Um, he was, he was like an undercover drug investigator with the, he, and he kept saying it's so nice to have nice conversations with normal people instead of, you know, talking to these drug addicts. Cause you know, he wore his hair long and he you know, posed as this, um, drug dealer or whatever, and was involved in, you know, keeping drugs off. Well, whatever. I, I don't fully understand it. He, he wouldn't go into great detail to talk about it, but he assured me he could get somebody to talk to me from the FBI. And, um, I said, okay, you know, let's, let's do it. And he, he said, well, before we do that, with your permission, I'm going to reach out to someone I know who was the second man in charge, or he was the man in charge of looking for the second man um, in the Murrow bombing. And he said, this is, this guy's a big old deal, but you can't talk to him directly, but the two of us will build a case file and then we'll send it to the FBI. And that's how we'll get the FBI to talk to you. And so he would come to me with questions and, um, you know, this went on for a couple of weeks, I guess, that he would, he would ask questions and his friend was building this case file. And I believe that man's name is Scott. No, it's not Scott. I, I really don't know what the man's name is. Arden never told me. I think he told me like a first name. I probably wrote it in the book, but I just can't recall right now. But um, Arden was the go-between and I never met that man, but he's that particular officer who was not retired sent that case file to the Seattle Bureau of the FBI. And, and after a couple of months went by, um, he called the FBI and said, Hey, we sent you a case file on Marla Cooper, her uncle, Lynn Doyle Cooper. And he's like, you need to, and the guy goes, Oh yeah, it's here somewhere. He goes, well, we closed that, that case. So it's just a cold case. And we're just going to close it. And, and this officer went off on probably Curtis Ng. Now that I think about it, I, I don't know who who he spoke to. I don't know exactly even if if yeah, it was it was Seattle that he sent it to because Seattle was who owned the case. But um, he said, "Listen, you're." He said, "This woman is not lying. She's telling the truth." Yeah, these these two guys, these two cops, or one of them was, I guess, FBI, or they were both Highway Patrol. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I know Arden was Highway Patrol, but I think he did other things besides that. But, um, you know, they were like, 
I mean, Arden from the first time I told him my story, he's like, you know, I deal with bullshitters all the time. And he goes, and I know when someone's lying, he goes, you're telling me the truth. He's like, I'm about to fall off my stool here. I'm sitting here with the niece of D.B. Cooper. And he goes, in my whole life, that's been this huge mystery. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, what are we going <laughs> to do with this? So um, they kind of threatened the FBI. I mean, not threatened like blackmail or something, but they said, you're going to listen to her. You're going to do an investigation. You're going to open that case up or we're going, you know, we, who we are, are going to Fox News. We're going to History Channel. We're going everywhere. And you're going to have egg all over your face because this woman is telling the truth. And and they listened. And um, I was actually taking off to go to Mexico on a, um, a trip. And when I returned, there was a business card from Special Agent Scott Billings out of Stillwater um, asking me to give him a call and Scott and I later, when we reunited last year, he's retired and, and, um, it's really interesting. He said, you know, from the get go, nobody doubted your story, Marla. He goes, you know, what, what he confirmed what Arden said, he goes, you know, when you're dealing with liars and, you know, I went through a polygraph test. I mean, they had, they believed me, but it's like they had to prove I was telling the truth in order to put any man hours on investigating this 40 year old case. I mean, you know, the FBI is accountable for finding, there were more pressing things by far than solving a 40 year old unsolved mystery that really didn't have anything to do with anything anymore. They were all doing it sort of as a hobby to even spend any time on it. Um, But there's no proving anything with the D.B. Cooper story. And Curtis cautioned me about that before I did go to the media because they leaked the story and I told them, well, I, he said, you know, we've, we've done everything we can with this case because, you know, the fingerprint evidence is not reliable. The DNA evidence is not reliable. Any reliable evidence that was with the case file is lost, missing. Um, You know, we, we can't, at that time, they couldn't even find fingerprints of LD. Um, later, I guess they did. Well, we did. I know now that they did. Um, but it was like they they aren't confident that any of the fingerprints they have were actually from the hijacker. So, you know, there's no proving it. And I believe now that's all by design, that um, he wasn't supposed to get caught. I mean, I think, I think there were some people who'd like to have had him caught and would have killed him, um, just like McCoy got killed. Just like you know, I believe I, I, I don't know how far you want to go into the Operation Northwoods thing with me, but I really believe that all those hijackings that were happening throughout the '60s and '70s were all false flags. That it, most of them. I, I mean, if not all of them were um, sanctioned by a deep state initiative and that my uncle was one of many and he somehow managed to stay alive. The rest of them did not. Um, but I really do believe that the what is known as Operation 
Northwoods, which was designed to drag us into a war with Cuba um, that was supposedly um, not not fulfilled. Kennedy shot down this big old plan for all these false flag attacks and propaganda surrounding us, which included a bunch of hijackings. Um, I think that that I think that that um, program was carried out probably under a different name and probably with some different circumstances, but um, it's too much of a coincidence that the CIA had this, had this thing designed, got past the joint chiefs of staff and approved and then presented to Kennedy who said, hell no, this is insanity. And, you know, then Kennedy's dead and all this hijacking start happening. So I think that my uncle was, and and probably all of the other suspects who are ever D.B. Cooper, the big ones, you know, that you hear about, I think they were probably all um, hijackers or involved in the hijackings somehow. I mean, my uncle was not one lone man acting out of a, you know, a whim. I thought that was the case when I went to the FBI. I don't believe that at all now. Um, so. That's my belief. That uh, many of the suspects are linked to the hijacking. Yeah, I I think I I really do believe that's true to that hijacking and other hijackings that were taking place. I think they, you know, especially the guys who worked in special forces, black ops, things like that. Um, I think that they were all part of whatever CIA initiative was, was carried out that was, um, all of those hijackings were, were all false flags. Um, there's a brilliant series, documentary series by Richard Dolan called false flags that describes what a false flag attack is. Um, there's another guy you can hear online. His name is Ole Damagard, who, talks about false flags, you know, what are the signs of false flags? How do you, you know, judge what is, why do they happen? And, you know, the more I learn about them, the more I think this absolutely was it. Um, it was one of those false flags. Um, it was designed to make people afraid to get on an airplane. Um, you know, somebody made a whole lot of money putting scanners in, airports and you know somebody benefited greatly from being able to track our movement um used to be you know at the time of the hijacking you could get on an airplane and not even have to show your id you just say my name's joe blow and you could get on a plane with a bomb with a gun with a parachute you know you could you could do all of those things and nobody had the right to question you so a year before the hijacking, the D.B. Cooper hijacking, the movie Airport came out. Um, and like a year before the movie came out, there was a book that was released in something like 17 languages. Sir Arthur Haley wrote this book about, you know, called Airport. And it's about this hijacker, this guy who's suffering from PTSD. I mean, it's very similar to the hijacking my uncle committed, um, but told 
you know, and it, it was the media hype around that movie. Their, their marketing budget was like 10 times what any other movie had been up until that point. And, and that movie, when it was released, we, we went to see it at the movie theater in, I think we were in Seattle. I'm pretty sure it was Seattle, the Fox theater in Seattle. Yeah. And so it was like a couple years before the hijacking, but my, um, I mean, I was so affected by it. It was like, oh my God, I can't believe this, that somebody could get on a plane with a bomb. And, you know, you're, I, I went back and watched this a couple of years ago and I was like, this is a propaganda piece. This is preparing United States citizens for the D.B. Cooper hijacking. It's like it brought our generation up to speed on what a hijacking is and why it's so bad that the airlines have no power to do any kind of security checks and people could get on an airplane and, you know, blow up all the passengers on the plane and everybody would perish together. And, you know, it's like, wow. And, you know, it's really funny because Ralph Himmelsbach is you know, the most quoted FBI agent about the hijacking. And he talked about how, oh, he was this surly, ugly, you know, mean, nasty, cussing. He was rude. He was horrible. And I mean, he even said in the History Channel documentary at the very end of it, um, you know, I'd love to catch that son of a bitch, something like that, you know, but meanwhile, he's telling the media, there's no way the guy survived. There's no way he could have survived this jump. We're looking for a dead man. Um, and Himmelsbach was, he was friends to, according to this certain FBI snitch that I talk about in my book. Um, I call him con man, Jack. Um, he told con man Jack, we're looking for a dead man. We know he's dead because we sewed his parachutes shut. He, he told him it's the FBI who sewed his parachutes shut. And when I went back and looked at the t transcripts and the timeline and what was happening, what was being told to the hijacker, it makes perfect sense to me that the con man Jack was telling me the truth. It wasn't an accidental, you know, he wasn't some dumbass who, you know, didn't know which, which parachute to pick he actually picked the Navy back six, which is the exact parachutes that were being used by the skydivers testing the 727 over Laos in the winter of 68 and 69. He knew exactly what he was doing when he picked the parachute he picked. And he would have checked that parachute. According to Army Rangers I've spoken to, they were like, he absolutely knew to check that chute. You know, he wouldn't have, <clears throat> he wouldn't have made a mistake like that. And, um, but Himmelsbach really kind of fed the media a bunch of bullshit. And I think he knew he was feeding the media a bunch of bullshit. And according to Jeffrey Gray's book, um, Himmelsbach had been the handler for, uh, this other guy who worked in special forces and black ops, he was, he was, um, the non-commissioned in charge, non-commissioned officer in charge of this other guy, um, Jerry, can't remember his name now. Jerry's this crazy guy. He used to post on the, um, drop zone website. Jerry Thomas. Jerry Thomas. Thank you. <laughs> who was just like ticking time bomb waiting to explode. And 
you know, Himmelbach kept Thomas out in the woods for the rest of his life, or I guess Jerry Thomas is still alive. But, you know, he had him out there looking for D.B. Cooper's body or the cash. You know, you're going to find, I mean, Thomas was like, I'm going to find him someday. I'm going to find him. And and I really think that Himmelsbach was like, yeah, Jerry's probably a little too whacked out to be dealing with real society. Just go out in the woods and, you know, use your survival skills and see if you can find the dead body. <laughs> <laughs> I really, and I, it, this was interesting. You know, I was, one day I just had this epiphany that what if Himmelsbach was my uncle's handler? You know, what if Himmelsbach was, you know, somebody who knew who my uncle was? And I was like, wait a minute. That would make perfect sense. If my uncle was actually a friend of Himmelsbach, you know, Himmelsbach, we know, worked in special forces. My uncle worked in special forces. Um, It was like, it would be odd if they didn't know each other, given, you know, what they both did. And I found out later from a general, a retired general, that my uncle ran a supply operation for Air America. He only knew him by that code name, Linus. Um, but he knew him and he knew who he was very well. And, you know, all through the Cold War, he said, yeah, your uncle was a badass. You know, there were other people who I spoken to who told me some things about him but um you know who don't want to be identified for pretty obvious reasons but I I thought that makes really good sense to me that Himmelsbach could have been his handler and so Bob Rackstraw the guy who was targeted in the History Channel documentary um he and I became friends after the documentary and we spoke almost every week and I made yeah and I made a trip out to San Diego to see him in February of this year and um we anyway Rackstraw was we're having this conversation and I said um I figured something out this week do you know who who Ralph Hemelsbach is yeah 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 and I go so he was the lead investigator out of the Portland Bureau and that's about all I got out of my mouth. And he goes, Andy worked with your uncle. Oh, no way. And I went, yeah. I said, how do you know that? And I go, have we talked about this? He goes, no. My, and he, this is how he spoke. No, my dear. We never spoke about it. But I have my sources. And I said, why didn't you tell me that? I mean, why, why haven't you told me? He goes, because you weren't here for me to tell you face to face. Because, I mean, there were a lot of things he was afraid to talk about on the phone. And he said, when we can sit down and actually talk, there's a lot of things I want to tell you. And he had, I mean, a mountain of documents that he had um, received from the, um, oh, what's that called? The... (laughs) I get, I'm so tired right now. I'm sorry. But the, the, um, the Freedom of Information Act? The Freedom of Information Act. Thank you. Um, he was like this. He had all these documents that Tom Colbert had been trying to get from the FBI. He himself had them. He, goes, he said some, like, he had something like 650,000 pages 
of documents that he needed to sift through that he wanted to find out and yada, yada, yada. And he said, I, um, I, when I can sit down and sift through all these things and put my thoughts together, you know, I want to strategize how we can help each other, you know, because I'm going to wait for the right time to drop the bomb that, you know, endorsing your story, whatever, whatever, all that. But he knew, he knew that Himmelsbach and my uncle had worked together. When I saw Curtis Ng in 2011, he told me, we're closing the case. And I said, really? (laughs) I go, what if somebody else comes forward with another suspect? He goes, no, Marla, we're done. He goes, we know your uncle was a hijacker. He goes, he said, we may never be able to prove it, um, but we know it was him. So what would be the point? And he said, I'm satisfied. I think everybody in our office is satisfied that he's a hijacker, but we just don't have evidence. So, you know, it was a closed case then. And now this official announcement comes out in 2016. How did you feel about that announcement in 2016? When you heard it, um, well, it's more that you know Curtis always told me the FBI will never confirm nor deny anything you say. I wish the F- you know it's interesting. I'm watching Curtis deliver this announcement, and I really felt bad for him because Curtis is not this TV personality. You know, he's a guy who takes his job really seriously. You know, he's hunting for kidnapped children. And I think he probably felt like a media puppet at that point. You know, that his name had been the one that had become the modern day um, go-to guy for for that. And and he was just kind of serious. It was like, I think the case had really been closed when he told me it was closed. And, you know, even though the official story was the case is still open and we would welcome whatever, whatever, I don't really think that was true. I think that um, he was just annoyed. And I was completely annoyed by the content of the History Channel documentary. It was like the editing. I've always said, you know, I always gave the media the benefit of the doubt that, you know, I'd, we'd have these interviews and I would spill my guts and um, there was nothing, it, you know, it'd get cut down to just an absolute nothing. And the official story of the hijacking was, was always just the same narrative. There was never anything new to report. There was nothing. And I felt like, you know, with the History Channel documentary during the pre- um, during the story development of it, I spent months with a story developer who um, did all the fact checking. I was sending her documents of where the transcript has been had been um, modified. It had been cut right at the point of that it becomes really obvious that somebody at the airline knows who the hijacker is while the plane is in flight. You know, there was there was definite. Um, there was, there was definitely a cover up when you, just by looking at that, you know, as 
along with other stuff. She had interviewed a retired general for 45 minutes and, you know, none of on camera, none of that got put into the documentary. And yet, you know, it was just this farce to, to try to pin the documentary on or try to pin the hijacking on the wrong guy. And at the end of the documentary, you find out, eh, couldn't have been him. Okay. never mind, Bye bye. You know, and that, when I was watching that History Channel documentary, I thought, we really are just like Hitler's Germans living in Nazi Germany. You know, that I, I was like, this is nothing but propaganda. I mean, this isn't an accidental editing oversight. This is a deliberate concealment of the truth. And, you know, it was at that point that I think I began to really wake up to um, a much, much bigger secrecy in our media than, than I had ever wanted to believe before. And, um, you know, and then the FBI announces we're going to, we're going to close the case. And there's like this news report, big announcement coming from the FBI. You know, it's like it was all planned. And, um, you know, and then, and as soon as that aired, I said, well, actually, actually what had happened was, you know, I watched the documentary and I told my friends, you know, besides that, I feel like we're, <laughs> we're, we're the Germans. Um, I said, I bet you, I bet, I bet a million dollars if I had it, that within three days, there's going to be some big old announcement about the latest thing in airport security. I, I said that. And so at the beginning of the newscast, when, you know, the FBI is making this big announcement and it was like two days after the history channel documentary aired, right. It was like, come to the TV and watch this. You know, the big, the big announcement is that, you know, the, the FBI is closing this case and it's on, all the networks, it's on all the news stations at the same time. And, you know, the FBI has closed this case. And then the next story on all the newscasts was about global entry. And it was like, wow, this is so much better at their marketing. You know, I'd only recently learned about global entry about how you can pay $300 and just pass through the airport, you know, by having your eyes scanned without having to show ID and, you know, I guess you do have to show ID, but you don't have to have your bags checked and yada, yada, yada. Now you pay us for us to know your whereabouts in an even better way than before. And I was like, wow, they've gotten a whole lot better at their marketing <laughs> than, you know, when the D.B. Cooper hijacking failed <laughs> to get the public's attention. And it was like, God, I mean, I sat there going, this is really real. This is what the stuff, I mean, I always used to laugh at my dad for being this conspiracy theorist. And suddenly it was like, Oh my God, I really should have taken him more seriously. You know, there was things that he knew. He worked in military intelligence, and he and his brothers would talk about stuff. And, you know, he and his best friend, once we moved to New Mexico, one of the guys he worked with in military intelligence lived in that little town. And, you know, 
dad carried a lot of secrets to the grave with him that he might have been willing to talk about had I taken him seriously instead of labeling him as some conspiracy nut. And, you know, it was like I was apologizing to him from this side over over to his side. I'm sorry I didn't listen. You know, been saying that for a while now. But you're talking about but it now. Absolutely. I, I do talk about it, you know, and, and it's really funny. I, I was with a friend of mine at a family reunion in Kentucky, not mine, his. And he said, oh, I can't wait for you to meet this one uncle, your cousin, whatever. And he's worked for the government, you know, blah, blah, blah. I can't wait to see what he has to say about your story. And, um, man, that uncle was just almost attacking me, you know, like, he was really rude. And my friend, his name is Danny. He, he goes, when the cousin left, he goes, that happened to you a lot. I go only with people who work for the government. Really? (laughs) (laughs) It's like people, people who really think they, you know, know everything that goes on within the government because they work for the government, you know, yeah, I go, yeah, it does happen. It does happen a lot. Actually, not all the time. I mean, then you get those other people who, you know, tell you their stories. Um, you know, and there've been plenty of those people who have said, you know, let me tell you what happened to to my family or you know, in the case of Karen Truitt, whose dad was on the plane during the hijacking, you know, I was going to ask you about her. About her Wow, what a what a woman! I mean, she she was haunted by the story because her dad was on the plane, and you know he'd also, according to Karen, and I think people dismissed Karen completely, but I believe her. She said her dad was also um, in L.A. when. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. He was in Dallas when JFK was shot. He was in Memphis when Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. And it was like, you know, I told that to um, Steve Bannon, who owns Breitbart News, right? I told this to him. He goes, You talked to Steve Bannon about this. Yes, I did. My sister's former boyfriend is good friends with Steve. They've worked together on different projects. So, so, yeah, he put me in touch with Steve Bannon, and he said, Steve Bannon goes, so did you? Did she also tell you about the little green men? <laughs> Something like that. And I said, Steve, she had no reason to, you know, try to deceive me. And I go, and I had my own experience, you know, with uh, things my father told me and yada, yada, yada. And it was like... I wonder what Steve Bannon would say about that now if we had this conversation today, you know, if he knows any more than he did then. You know, this was before he was appointed by Trump to join him and all of that, you know, and most of the world didn't know who Steve Bannon was. But all of this happened during the election, right? And that's the other thing, you know, when it was actually interviewed, the on-camera interview after all the story preparation, um, and so Billy Jensen and Tom Fuentes, who was the former assistant director of the FBI, were who interviewed me. And at the end, and, you know, they were, 
I, they were tough. They were tough interviewers. Tom, you know, really did approach me like it was an FBI interrogation. And he, to me, seemed extremely satisfied with my answers. He questioned me, drilled me really hard. Why do you think this? How does it, how do you explain this and that and the other thing? And, you know, and I fired back with my answers, you know, it was like, you, you can't, you can't tear my story apart. I have good reasons for believing what I believe. And, you know, and he was, as he asked about the semantics of certain things, I said, well, it's, you know, my understanding from other people who work in black ops that, you know, the left hand never does know what the right hand is doing and yada, yada. And he goes, well, actually, that really is how things work. And, you know, he told me things about the computer system of 1971 and, you know, the Internet that was actually available that was every bit as advanced as the Internet the public has now. And, I mean, he confided some things. And at the end of it, he was like, I can't wait to talk to you again. And, you know, and yet when you watch the History Channel documentary, you see him and Billy being questioned. And he goes, and then she started saying some things and you, you know, and, and then they cut him off right there. And it's like, I know the rest of that thought was, you know, what what really happened in that room on that, as the film was rolling, was he was persuaded. He believed me. And yet the documentary makes it look like I'm just some crazy woman and that's what they thought and end of story, you know. And yet Billy Jen- Yeah, you're in the documentary for about 90 seconds, I think. If I don't think it's even that much. I I think it's. I think it's less than that. The one, and I know there's been a new edit and a new release. Some things have come out. There's, there's other. You know, when you do a story, it's like you sign a waiver, and they can take all the film footage. You know, into until I'm dead and long beyond, and do whatever the hell they want to. I've never been paid a dime for any interview. And um, anyway, I think Billy Billy Jensen actually posted. On his personal website, um, a clip that was not in the documentary where one of the former field officers um, out of, I think out of Seattle, said, I really think Marla Cooper's uncle could have done it, could have been the hijacker. That's not in the documentary. And um, there was something else about it that was kind of, oh, I went back to the woman named Avril Gallagher had been the story developer who had spent months doing the development, um, told me right after the documentary aired, you know, we had this text conversation. She said, um, that was the worst experience I've ever had in my life. She goes, we spent all this time doing the story development, creating the documentary and, you know, creating all this great storyline and at the end of it all, the History Channel came in with their own people, fired everybody who'd been working on the project, everybody got released, and they came in with their own editors and twisted the story into something that really wasn't even related to what they'd uncovered. She said, I've, she goes, I can't, even, I can't even bring myself to watch it. She goes, I've heard from too many people how bad it is. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be a drag. It would be a drag, but also that, you know, but she confirmed to me that, um, you know, it wasn't just my imagination. It was like, oh, okay. 
so that bad editing thing that just happens with every everything I've ever appeared in. And, you know, I'll go back to the interviewer and go, what the hell happened? You're like, I don't know. You know, the editors have final say in what goes into something. And it's like, wow, wow. That's, um, yeah, yeah. The History Channel was kind of the final straw for me. I was like, I'll never do another interview like that for something like that without being paid. And, you know, and and I'm not going to just, I don't know. It's like I, I don't you want to want... be able to control the, the narrative a little bit more. Well, and not be part of somebody else's yeah. that you're not even sure of. Let's go. Let's go back to 2011 for a second. So you've already been talking to the FBI for about two years at this point. They're yeah. they're very into your story. They're taking you seriously. You did the polygraph. Then the story goes public. What? What did you think of the public reaction to it? Um, it was well, it was really weird. Let me let me go to how the story got released because first it they leak to the London Telegraph. Um, they, I guess that Ein Dietrich, who was probably still is the spokesperson for the Seattle FBI, um, was quoted saying, um, we now have our most promising lead ever in the Norjack investigation. And, you know, that was like, what? And then that, that remark goes viral. Somehow, you know, overnight, it was like, who's this promising new lead? You know, ABC. Yeah, I lived in Woodland at the time. It was a huge story. It was a huge story. And so um, they... I guess it was that night I kind of just watched. I had a friend who owned an advertising agency who knew I was working on the book. And I had told her, I said, you know, when the time comes, I'm probably going to want to help have you help me with publicity because, you know, when I'm ready to release this book or whatever, well, I really didn't expect the FBI to just leak that but i had told curtis if you're not going to do anything further with the investigation i'm going to go to the media well i was thinking in a few months (laughs) (laughs) well i was thinking i actually was like yeah you know about the time of the of the anniversary would be a good time to leak that whatever you know i don't know what i didn't really have a plan (laughs) that's the story of my life but um so here it is. It's like, oh my God, this is the golden hour. This is your opportunity. You've got to come forward. Well, how do you do that? You know, you can't exactly raise your hand and go, oh, it's me. You know, so I called my friend, Lauren Hammock, and I said, can you help me with this? This is the moment I've got to, I've got to somehow make it known that I'm this most promising lead they're talking about. You know, it's imperative for the success of my book once it comes out. <laughs> my my naivete, right? And and she's like, yeah, absolutely. And she makes a few phone calls, and she somehow, you know, gets she gets to ABC um, bureau in Washington D.C. And she's like, they want some kind of proof that you are 
really who they're talking about. And so I forwarded an email from Curtis Ng and, you know, correspondence between the two of us. And they called the FBI and the FBI, I guess, confirmed that it was me or at least you know, that that document was proof enough that it was. I mean, this is obviously an official email from the FBI. And I think it was when they were scheduling the polygraph test. That's what I sent off. And I was like, well, this ought to persuade them. And um, they flew a crew out to interview me. Jack Clordy was the producer and Pierre, I'm terrible, you know, I don't watch the news. Pierre is a very well-known um, investigative journalist for ABC News. And anyway, it was Pierre and, and Jack. Jack and I really kind of bonded. I thought the world of him and he, he gave me some wise counsel afterwards. Um, but they did this interview and that story was on Good Morning America the next day. And, you know, and it was really just sort of a, it was, it told nothing. You know, this woman, Marla Cooper says her uncle and yada, yada, yada. And in the first airing, they had something wrong. Pierre had actually written the script and he said, he vanished, you know, from her life and she never saw him again after that Thanksgiving day, which was not true. It had been a year later. And so they corrected that in the, um, when it was online, that, that got straightened out. And, um, and so whenever the story goes all over the place, then, and it's like, everybody's contacting Lauren because she now was representing me and everybody wants interviews. And, and then people are digging, you know, these like investigative journalists out of, um, Bend in Portland were sending me information and going, Hey, do you know this? Do you know this? You know, stuff about my uncle that I had no way of knowing. But, you know, people with that kind of uh, research capabilities were, were telling me things. And I was like, Wow, this is really cool. And then cousins, you know, who I hadn't seen since I was a little kid were finding me on Facebook and old friends. And, and it was like, I mean, geez, I don't think I slept for like two weeks when all of that was happening. But what was disturbing to me was the FBI had already gone through, you know, trying to match his DNA to the DNA they had, and it had failed. You know, long before they said this is the most promising lead, um, they had failed to lift the fingerprints from my mother's guitar strap, or I guess... um, yeah, the stra- that was it. They, that was what triggered me saying, I'm going to go to the media because the fingerprints didn't match the guitar on the, you know, there was no fingerprints on the guitar strap. And I said, well, you know, I think I'm going to, are you going to do this or got it? Why don't you go back to his house and see if there's anything there? Maybe his leather working tools are in an attic or something, you know, surely there's got to be fingerprints of him somewhere. And Curtis goes, oh, you know, maybe we'll get around to it someday, you know, yada, yada, yada. I was like, I was kind of appalled that he wasn't going to do anything more with it. And and he goes, Marla, you know, I really just sort of do this as a hobby, you know. <laughs> this isn't, he goes, it's like my own time. He goes, I have a lot more important cases. And I went, well, yeah, you know, I can understand that. And, you know, so so they already knew the fingerprints didn't match, blah, blah, blah. 
So here's how the headlines go. FBI has their most promising lead. And then the next thing you know is um, Marla Cooper, you know, Oklahoma woman, says her uncle was the hijacker. And then my mother's story airs. And then the next thing that happens is that my um, they release the DNA doesn't match. And then a couple more, you know, another day later, and the headlines are, you know, that that the fingerprints don't match. And it's like all of that was known from day one, but they made it look like I was no longer viable. Thank you. Sorry, I just got a delivery at the door. Um, that I was no longer a viable um, witness because of whatever, you know, because of those things coming out. And it was like, I got sick so weird you know if you're if I was making a movie <laughs> you know and it, you remember it, the, some of those movies like Get Smart you'd see the newspaper twirling out and then it'd stop at the headline that's kind of how <laughs> yes over those days it was like you know oh they think they've got the 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 right witness you know the right guy whatever and now oh no 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 nope, never mind and it's like then I just kind of fade into oblivion you know, meanwhile, you know, the FBI is telling me, we know it was him. We're closing the case. But it's like, that's not the story the media is giving. The media is giving the story of, you know, well, it's this and it's this and it's this. And, you know, knowing what I know now, I think I think that was kind of um, deliberate, that it was a way of discrediting my story. And Did you expect it to turn so quickly? To turn? No, I really didn't. I kind of thought, just one second. Oh, I sort of thought that there would be, you know, fall, I don't know. But it, honestly, here's here's how naive I was. I thought, oh, the whole world's going to be so happy the D.B. Cooper mystery is finally solved. And, you know, and I was like, and people will see me and meet me and talk to me. And no matter whether or not it's proven by evidence, I think if people, like my dad used to say, Marla, just be yourself. You know, I was like, nobody who knows me would, would ever question, you know, my sincerity, my motivation, my whatever, you know. But, I mean, I'm, it was like, I, and I really didn't expect expect the attack from from you know, those D.B. Cooper sleuths who had their own pet suspects, you know, that they were protective of or whatever. I was like, I thought I was there to save the day. <laughs> I was so so naive. I really thought, oh, you know, I just won the cheerleading competition. I didn't. I didn't think for a moment that it was something that was um, going to impact. Um, it was just kind of weird. It was like, I, I didn't expect to be attacked. I guess that was it. I didn't expect to be attacked. And then... By the people who I assume you thought would be most interested in your yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those following the case. You know, and, and actually... It's it's only the people who had their own um, motives for you know protecting their pet suspects 
you know, like people who wrote books about this suspect or that suspect and why it was them. And here's all of our evidence. And, you know, that's why they did it. And, you know, basically all I had was my testimony and, you know, the fact that, um, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't have evidence. I couldn't prove it. Um, but like Curtis said, everything about his life lines up with what you, you know, with, with what we know about the hijacker, everything about him, you know, he said we couldn't prove it in a court of law because we would actually have to have an eyewitness who knew him and saw him get on the plane and commit the hijacking to be able to prove it in court. And so that's why they were going to close the case. They didn't have that. Um, and Do you it, know if your uncle's picture was shown to to Tina Mucklow? It was, and according to the, um, I think it was Scott Billings who told me that in the file when when the picture was shown to her, she said, "Of all the people you've ever shown me, this guy sure looks like him." That's what was told to me by, um, I, I believe it was Scott Billings. It was either Scott Billings. It had to have been Scott Billings. I'm not sure. Um, but, but somebody told me that, that that was her response. And then, you know, lo and behold, there was somebody else who claimed that same, those same exact words. <laughs> and I, I think it was, um, what's his name? Robert. You know who I'm talking about. He's the guy who wrote. He has that Robert Blevins. Yeah, Robert Blevins. Yeah, I think it was him who said that she said that about her suspect or his suspect. I don't know. Whatever. I and that that's what also was weird was watching her on the History Channel. You know, having having to be you know paraded out there in public. This woman who has fought so hard to keep her privacy. And, you know, here she is, you know, there for the world to see, looking at this picture and going, it's not him, you know, and it's like, gee, where's the picture of my uncle where she could say, you know, supposedly what she had said to the FBI when she saw his picture, you know, why aren't we telling the real story? That's the big question. Why aren't we telling? Yeah, and if you've got them sitting there, why not show them? Hey, you know, turns out there's 25 suspects. Yeah, look at all 25 of these dudes and tell us which one comes closest. How about this question? Were there any suspects that have been presented to you over time that you felt could have been the hijacker? How about that question? If you were going to do a real documentary, really asking an eyewitness about it. Wouldn't you ask that question? That whole documentary was not, it was totally just to target, to target Bob Rathstraw. It was Tom Colbert trying to get rich for exploiting Bob Rathstraw. You know, he, I, in my opinion, Tom Colbert saw my story make all those headlines in 2011. And he said, Huh, I think I'll go find me a suspect and I'll I'll make the money Marla Cooper thought she was gonna make on this story. <laughs> I didn't care if I made money. Yeah, it would have been nice, you know, but but it was more that it was I honestly just felt like 
God had chosen me to witness this thing. He allowed me to see what happened. He allowed me to know those people. He he put me in touch, you know, throughout the investigation and afterwards, after 2011, that's when things really got interesting. That's when, you know, Karen Truitt came into my life and told me about her father. And that's when Conman Jack appeared, told me about, um, you know, his relationship with Ralph Himmelsbach. And, and, you know, it was a couple years after that, that I met the man I refer to as the rancher who actually worked with my uncle, who could be that eyewitness who saw him and recognized him from, you know, the, he knew immediately when he saw the composite, who it was, he knew, he knew it was the man he had worked with that he called Linus. And, you know, does any of that make any headlines has that even have those things ever been told in any of my interviews no I mean I've told that story again and again and you know it always gets dumbed down to some narrative that just sounds like whatever why do you think your story stopped being taken seriously at some point um I would say my question would be taken seriously by who you know, who does take it seriously and who doesn't? Um, I think the FBI takes it very seriously. Rackstraw told me that he had gone into Sam's one day and there was a pile of books. And there was one about unsolved mysteries, FBI's unsolved mysteries or something. And, and of course, the D.B. Cooper story was in there. And it said the only suspect to not be ruled out by the FBI was Lynn Doyle Cooper. So, you know, I think in some circle, I think to the people, it matters that it matters to me <laughs> that I take them seriously. I don't think there's a question. I mean, there were producers in at the Berlin Film Festival who wanted to make a movie out of my story. You know, I still have an agent in Hollywood and an entertainment attorney who are waiting for me to do a rewrite of the book. And, you know, including more of the um, conspiracy stuff that I've found out since the story made headlines. But I think that I think that my story has been presented by people doing very creative editing as, you know, she's a crazy lady because that real, the real story is kind of dangerous. You know, if the media has been deceiving and lying to us all the time, you know, over that, what else are we being lied to about? And, you know, like Tom Fuentes said when he was interviewing me, he used to present every night on CNN. He'd be on there as, you know, this, um, professional commentator of things that were happening in, you know, world news. And during, so during the um, filming of the documentary and, you know, during the heat of the election that was going on, he was going, he told me, because, you know, we had this happen over in this country and that happened over in that country. And then we had this and that and the other thing. And he goes, None of it, he, he hadn't been on the news in weeks. And he said, none of it has made the news. None of it made the evening news. And these were big, important things going on. And I go, 
is that because all we're hearing about is the circus? And he kind of looks like, what? I go, you know, the election. And he laughed. He goes, it is a circus. I go, I really wonder, you know, is is all of that distracting us from think, something else that we really should be looking at? And, you know, that's kind of how I feel about my story is that I um, – certainly wasn't trying to harm anybody by telling it, but I think a lot of people in the U S and really around the world are waking up, you know, our own president is springing from the top of his lungs about fake news. And, you know, I'm, I'm of the very strong opinion that our news is fake. There are certain entities who, who own every media outlet that is, you know, widely, known as the mainstream media who controls the narrative of pretty much every story we get and you know my story it wasn't going to make that mainstream media cut (laughs) at least not in fact so so because it would open up the larger story yeah of what really happened the largest story what really happened you can read the transcript and you look through the transcript at um when there's this, and Ralph Himmelsbach wrote about it in his book, which was, I'm sure, ghost written, um, about this communication that came into the SeaTac Tower from Minneapolis headquarters that said, um, some, made reference to the hijackers' arrest record, previous arrest record, which they would not have known. They didn't even have his real name. And at that point, they didn't even know the fake name he had given. They didn't know which one of the passengers was hijacking the airplane. And yeah, how could they know his arrest record when apparently they don't even know his name today? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that that's when when I read that in the Himmelsbach book, Himmelsbach's book, I went, Oh my god, they always knew who the hijacker was. It was never a mystery. It was never a mystery to certain people. And, you know, that's when I thought this was a government sanctioned hijacking. I mean, I blamed the government. Hell, I don't even know who to blame. (laughs) All I know is that, you know, I I would say now it was a deep state operation, you know, that it was the hijacking among all those other hijackings was, you know, part of a false flag operation to um, make some big changes in our world. And we're still living through the repercussions of that. You know, our, our world is riddled with war and all these reasons to be at war with with each other and to be fighting and to be afraid. And Catherine Austin Fitz talks about um, the popsicle factor. When I was a kid, I mean, we lived on the, one block off the corner of Maine and Division in Spokane, Washington, two major, major intersections. And I and all the neighborhood kids would walk over to the fruit stand on the corner and get free apples from the guy who owned the fruit stand there. You know, we all would walk to the corner store and buy a popsicle, even in a seedy neighborhood. Nobody was afraid. You know, now, God, you wouldn't send your kid out to walk around the block. You know, not till they're like 13 or 14 at least and have their cell phone and mace. And, <laughs> and, 
<laughs> you know, it's like we, we live in a world that's just full of fear and terror. And I think it's largely unfounded. I really do. I think that a lot, and I'm not saying that these shootings aren't happening, but I think that most of them are false flag attacks. There's, there are very real patterns to what those look like. And, you know, most of those shootings that we're seeing, they have all the evidence of being a false flag attack. And it's like, okay, when do we stop doing this? You know, when do we stop funding prisons and wars and weapons? And, you know, when, when do we get back to living happy, peaceful, productive lives, you know? that's what I'm choosing to do is live a happy, peaceful, productive life. And that's why I kind of just went, well, maybe I told the story enough. If anybody wants to hear it, they can hear it. And, but, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste any more of my energy trying to get it out there. Yeah. There's no sense participating if it's going to be spun in a negative way. Yeah. And I don't want to play with the bullies. (laughs) (laughs) I was a new kid often enough to know it's not fun to play with the bullies and you don't try to make friends with them. You just, you go find people who are your friends and that's who you hang out with. So, um, yeah, I guess we never change really. (laughs) I haven't, I don't think I've changed. How did you, how did you come to the idea that maybe multiple suspects are involved? You know, it was when Karen was still alive Karen Pruitt was, and it was actually right after I was reading Ralph Schmolzbach's book, you know, I got my hands on that and, and went, holy shit, you know, they knew who the hijacker was. And then I just kind of went, well, it wasn't that interesting. You know, I'd heard all these other people present at, at Jeffrey Gray's deal. And I thought, you know, these are compelling stories. I, I don't doubt the people sharing their evidence, you know, of this person and that person, and then they disappeared. And then, you know, especially McCoy and how he went to prison um, for a, another, you know, copycat hijacking. And then he gets out and then he gets gunned down. And I thought, this is what they, this is what the CIA does to assets who know too much, who have, worn out their um, their usability. It's like they become more of a liability than they are an asset at, at a certain point. And I think that that's where McCoy was. That's where my uncle was in his career and, you know, these other suspects. I think that um, Dwayne Weber, I mean, he, to me, he sounds like an absolute psychopath. You know, from the things that we know he's a pathological liar. And I mean, I haven't read the detailed stories of these people, but I'm just like, you know, there's a reason their families are absolutely convinced, you know, their families are friends, whatever. And I think in many cases, they were probably involved in a hijacking or that hijacking. And you know, when it's like in Dwayne's case, you know, I was D.B. Cooper. You know, I think it's sort of like saying um, I was I was I was a um, I was a mass shooter. You know, it's like there I think that there were several 
planned hijackings that were part of that same Operation Northwoods or whatever the second generation of Operation Northwoods was. And and I think that, you know, I, I guess I just kind of put that together that they're all part of the same operation. You know, my uncle was the guy on that airplane that night, but I think there was a much bigger network of people involved in that. I think there were handlers involved. I mean, just look at the statistics of, you know, it's, it's the day before Thanksgiving and there's 36 passengers on a plane that will hold 110 passengers. And this is a commuter flight, like going from Oklahoma city to Dallas, you know, people, the airline was busy. It was full of students trying to get home for their break and, you know, the fam- businessmen trying to get home, you know, to their families and families traveling back and forth. And it's like, and yet that plane only has 36 passengers on board. And yeah, I've always thought that was weird the yeah, timing, too. Yeah. And then you put all the numbers together. It's like there were only six women on the plane. What? And then and there are like five that I know of. Um, there were four people who, besides A.J. Truett, Karen Truett's dad, um, were the other th- three guys he was traveling with were also most likely CIA operatives, you know, spooks there to make sure the hijacking goes according to plan. Um, there were several government workers on that plane. <laughs> you know, the number of, of people who worked for the government compared to if you took an average segment of the population who would have been flying on a plane that day, just like statistically, it just doesn't make any sense that this was just a random act, you know, and it just happened to be this way. And I think we are such stupid blind sheep because, you know, and still to this day, people just believe a narrative, you know, well, they never caught the guy. You know, and they say that and say this, and it's like, or you could have a brain and think for yourself. <laughs> you know, you could, you could do your own research and come to your own conclusions about a thing. And to me, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense um, that there was that Operation Northwoods document that anybody can go online and read about and learn about. And you look at what happened in history. Um, after JFK died, and and that it didn't actually get carried out. So, and I came to that conclusion long before I knew about Operation Northwoods. That you know it was one of many hijackings. You know that I think all these suspects were all part of them. So, you know, and it I think it makes secret powers to be really happy that instead of all of those people with their suspects coming together and figuring out what really happened, that everybody just fights with each other instead. So <laughs> I don't want to be. Yeah. I mean, fighting. more, more uh, disinformation. Right. I mean, wouldn't it, it would be really interesting. Like I would love to sit down with um, Mark uh, Metzger. I always get his name wrong. But he's he's a guy who has you know been this. He's highly educated. He's an attorney. He's um, an electrical engineer. But he's also, as of his seventieth birthday, he had skydived out of planes more than more than a thousand times. I think he completed his thousandth jump on his seventieth birthday or something. 
and he did a he um he did a report on the parachutes and his that same at the um forum that that uh gray did his his report was fascinating i mean what he knew about the parachutes and he's the one who showed the films of the test dives happening over laos and i was like i'd love to sit down with him and carol eberkzinskas and um tom k probably and um if if an FBI agent would actually talk, you know, I'd love to sit down with, I'd love to get face to face with Ralph Himmelsbach. <laughs> Come on, tell me the truth. I think he kept my uncle alive by spreading the lies of, you know, his character and that he had to be dead and yada, yada, yada. I think he protected him. I really do. I think he's the reason my uncle got to live to be however old he was in 99, 66 years old. People will send me articles, you know, every now, you know, like when, when Bob died, this was heartbreaking because he had just sent me a text on the 4th of July and I hadn't replied, you know, and here like a week, two weeks later, whatever it was, he died. And, you know, somebody sent me that story and I was, I felt so horrible and, you know, that I hadn't replied to that email or that text because, you know, I was out at the lake or something, and and but yeah, no, I don't. When people send me the stories, I just it always almost makes me feel a little bit sick in my stomach. You know, I I didn't. I don't feel. I don't feel obligated to keep up with it. You know, it's like I'm. I'm happy to just sort of disappear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I am going to get a, a rewrite out, you know, of my book and tell more of what I know and, you know, tell more of the story behind the story and what I've learned since I released my book, which I just stuck it out on the internet. So the history channel wouldn't have my intellectual property out before I did. And I needn't have worried. They, they didn't tell anything on my story at all. So your book, uh, DB's Niece in the Raw, Unedited, a Memoir. Yeah. Yeah. Can Available on Kindle and paperback. Yes. I read it on Kindle, and I have to say it was the first book I read on Kindle because I thought, I've always thought, oh, I want to have the physical copy in my hand uh-huh. as part of the experience of reading a book. But on Kindle, it's much cheaper than. Yeah. It is because Amazon, there's a lot of pictures in the book. And so printing it one copy at a time on Amazon is like, there's no profit in that price tag. It's like, you know, two or three, it's like nothing. It's $44 and 44 cents or something. I don't, I don't make money on it. It's, It's like, it's nothing. And so I just wanted the story to be out. But it costs a lot to to print a book of that size and when they're doing them one at a time. You know, if I was to do a run of 10,000 or something, I would take it to someone with a web press and have it done and distributed. But I, it was more just a matter of protecting my intellectual property. And the next book, I think, will have wider release. And, you know, I'll go through the proper channels to make sure that happens. But... That one, I really felt like it was an unfinished work, 
and you know, I wasn't really ready to put it out, but Jack Clardy at ABC News had advised me, you know, you better get that out before the History Channel documentary comes out. So it actually came out at about the same time. I thought it was great, and I, I really enjoyed reading it on Kindle uh, because I was at a tire shop, and of course it was going to be a long time, I'm at work, and I thought, oh, I can get on my phone and read Marla's book oh, it's great. right now. So it was convenient, and you change the size of the font. It was my first experience with Kindle, but it was a really good book, and I really enjoyed all the moving around because I've lived in quite a few places in the Pacific Northwest, so I was like, oh, I know that town. I know where that's at. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah, I think your story is really misrepresented. Um, I've heard most of your story from those news stories you were talking about mm-hmm. and from db cooper forums oh. that's where i had most of your story before i read the book and then in the book it, you have emails from curtis ing and all these other communications and it just th- it's so much more legitimate in the book than <laughs> it's presented anywhere else yeah because i was telling the story Somebody <laughs> instead of somebody else making up my story. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I also think I was never one to just stand up and blow my own horn and, you know, fight for you're gonna believe me or else. It's like eh, you can believe me or don't believe me. I don't I really don't care. You know, it's no skin off my teeth. But what really is that it is it's insulting that people base their opinions on me and or you know on my story through so much of a narrative that is absolutely false you know I've been I've been quoted to say things that have never come out of my mouth you know I've been and and then even just the creative editing when I watched the history channel documentary and I saw how you know they portrayed me it was like oh my gosh how did you get that out of all those hours? You know, as I was sitting in the room in Portland doing the interview, which was like four, four or five hours um, long, the interview was, and the um, producer, the, the you know, Tom Fentes and Billy Jensen, the camera people, the director, it was a room full of people watching me, and they're riveted. They're, you know, of course, you got to be quiet. It's a professional sound stage kind of a thing. But it's like every time the camera gets turned off, they're like, wow. You know, they're saying to me, wow, you have the real story. You know, this is a, you have so many more details than anybody else we've talked to. You know, you're, it's like, you know, those people they don't get they don't get to be the ones doing the editing. You know, the editing is left to um, very careful scrubbers who make sure that there's a a narrative that gets stuck to. And I think it's that way with every news story we get. I really do. I and I've heard this from other people who are whistleblowers about different things that you know you, you talk to the mainstream media and God knows what what you're gonna what what you're gonna say that you never said you know like yeah oh well oh well it was my 
my 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> but, um, you know, I really would, I would like for the story to be more widely known as I have told it. And, you know, as, as I know the story to be. And, you know, I think it's a far more interesting story than what's been told, for sure. Absolutely. Hopefully a, a bunch of people will will buy your book after listening to this. Well, if if people have only heard your story from those other interviews or read about uh, your story online from somebody else's point of view, mm-hmm. what would you say to them? I would say, please read my book. In fact, you know, I would I would email them the PDF if they couldn't buy the book. I would just say, you know, if you really want to know my story, you should hear it from me. And here it is. You know, I I just feel like I'm not going to go to war over it with somebody. You know, people and people get really protective of their ignorance. You know, they get they get very. I was that way. I was that way once. You know, it was we're really addicted to anger in our country and you know it's like it's a lot easier to believe that someone's crazy and a liar than it is to change our paradigm and and i think that i think that even engaging to hear my story and what i have to say requires a bit of a paradigm shift if you're going to give any clout to it you know i wouldn't have I wouldn't have believed, you know, if my dad that night sitting at the table would have said to me, you know, Marla, this was a clandestine operation, which I think he knew it was. Um, but if he would have said that to me, I would have completely blown him off. I mean, I was like, oh, dad, it's such a crazy conspiracy theorist. You know, I would have said that to him. So I had that kind of a mind at one time. And now... I just, I don't, I have a mind that says, you know, people have their experience and who am I to argue with, with what someone else has lived through, especially after what I've lived through. Um, you know, it caused a lot of loss in my life to share the story. Um, you know, my whole family, my ex family, my children were harassed by the media, by, um, supposed investigative journalists and you know it was really ugly it was ugly for a long time and I don't care to relive it yeah I definitely understand that and I mean why should you have to defend yourself yeah yeah I mean I I pretty much live by the policy of following my bliss and you know learning the story learning what happened all of that that was all so exciting. That was a real, and you know, just the way that the the floodgates of heaven opened up to provide for me to be able to tell that story. You know, the people who found me, um, even when I was writing the book, there was a man I met who became my underwriter. Um, another woman I know invited me to live on her private estate. And I mean, I lived behind locked, a locked gate the whole time. I was writing a story of a friend with a cabin in the mountains and I was back and forth between this private estate and this secluded cabin to write the story while, you know, I was receiving a monthly check from an underwriter and it was like, 
that was amazing that those things happened. And it wasn't like I went out knocking on doors and going, hey, would you do this for me so I can write this book and, you know, tell the world this made up story. You know, I really believe God wanted me to tell that story. And, you know, who knows what I'm supposed to do with it now. Um, I kind of see, you know, I've immersed myself since um, 2016. Really, I have been, um, I've become a student of those conspiracies. You know, one of my friends very early on said, oh, my gosh, you know, you could be going to the UFO conferences and stuff. And I was like, are you out of your mind? My story doesn't have anything to do with any of that. And, you know, here I am eight years later and I'm going, maybe I do belong in those places. You know, <laughs> seriously, you know, maybe that community is the community that can really understand. I mean, they're the ones who, who go, yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of secrecy in our government. There's a lot of stuff that we're being protected from. I mean, the first time I heard about it was about disclosure, which is really happening now in a lot of ways. A lot of this crap, this secret clandestine crap is coming in. I mean, look at Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, there's been this network, vast worldwide network of child abuse. I mean, it's just horrible, horrible. It's gone on for decades, you know. Things are coming out and things are getting exposed in the light, you know. So maybe it is time for me to, you know, tell retell the story to an audience who's maybe a little more awake than they were in 2011. Actually, I think people are a lot more awake than they were in 2011. You know, 2011 was completely status quo kind of thing and you know now I think that people really are kind of waking up and paying attention more and you know maybe it would be a time for that story to fall on more receptive ears you know there's probably going to be a large portion of people who still say she's just some crazy woman you know but but um I don't know I I I think there's there's got to be a reason God put me through all that you know, it wasn't, I don't, don't think it was just to stop there. I'm not dead yet. 50th anniversary is coming up. So who knows what could happen between that Jubilee year of the hijacking and right now. Right. Yeah. And I, I really enjoyed in your book, how you detailed that whole 2011 experience. I thought that was great. I'll have to go back and read it. <laughs> It was really funny. I mean, there was some, it was really like an emotional roller coaster. But the the funniest part about it for me was, and I don't know if I left it in the book, but, you know, it, after the symposium and everything, this person, you know, was like, oh, you got to go on there and read, you know, what, what's being said about you on this forum. I'd never been on the drop zone forum and, and it was like being a fly on the wall. And, and there was this guy, he called himself, um, what did he call himself? It was really funny. He had a funny, funny name, but he would always do these cartoons comparing me to Robert Blevins. And like, I was butterflies and ribbons and flowers and Robert Blevins was the Holocaust. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he would, oh, he was 
funny. And he would write these crazy poems. And I mean, I would just roar with laughter at the stuff that he wrote. And then there's, you know, then then you're reading through the other crap. And it was like, ugh. But such energy. It was just exhaustive. You know, it's just exhausting to to be involved with it. And that's when I just went, I don't, I don't need this. <laughs> Life's hard enough without going looking for difficulty. You know, I, I want to find the happy places in life. Well, hopefully this is going to be the start of the resurgence for you in your story in a, in a more friendly way. That's very sweet of you, Darren. I hope so too. And thank you for being such a kind listener. And, you know, just it's, it's always, it's always nice to talk to someone who's obviously just a curious questioner instead of a hostile. Yeah, I've been, I was very excited to talk to you, especially uh, we spoke about a month and a half ago, I guess now. Um, but I was super nervous to talk to you because you're, you're like a celebrity to me. Oh, <laughs> that's sweet. You know, that's funny. Is Some of my friends say that. I, I don't feel like that. You know, I just feel like me. But I think, I think when you're, when it's, you're like from my hometown, right? When, from one of many, many, many of the hometowns, but really anybody from the Pacific Northwest, it's like, I feel like they're family, you know? So I'm sorry you were nervous. I don't. I don't think I'm unapproachable. <laughs> I, no. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you for having me. Thank All right, Marla. Thanks thank again you. for coming on. I really appreciate right. it. Bye bye. Head over to Amazon and order Marla's book, DB's Niece. It's less than nine bucks on Kindle, and it's really good. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. If you want to tell us how great we are, or if you've solved the case, you can find us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex. On Twitter, we are at dbcooperpodcast, or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Marla Cooper for sharing your story with us. Thank you to Russell Colbert for sharing his skill with us. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.